This is episode number 301, Behind the Adventure Stash, with professional cyclist Payson McKelvin. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. If there's one thing that I think really has benefited me throughout my career, it's paying attention to what other people are doing outside the norm and pulling inspiration from that. And so I was doing that and I started to notice that there were these people kind of on the fringe of what was traditional a little bit that were really finding success. Wow, I can't believe that it's May and I am truly excited for the summer and for all of the adventures that the summer holds. And I hope that you have something fun planned whether it be something in your backyard or a big adventure that you are taking for the very first time. Summer is such a great time to do all of that. Adventure is a theme that is tied into today's podcast, so I think you'll enjoy hearing about it. I was really excited to sit down with today's guest because there's a lot of parallels in our careers, and I really respect what he does. So let's talk about Payson McKelvin. He is not your traditional professional mountain biker. After cycling at Fort Lewis College and becoming a multiple-time national champion, Payson decided to focus more on longer events instead of the traditional World Cup racing and pursuit of the Olympics. In 2017, he won his first national title at the 2017 Marathon National Championships and then won again in 2018. He's won the Mongolia Bike Challenge, which was a race that spurred his interest in endurance events, which we talk about, and he has done incredibly well at races like the Whiskey Off-Road. He first started riding a bike at age four, but he also played other sports, including basketball, but really developed his love and focus for cycling at the age of 14. Payson is also known for his podcast, The Adventure Stash, for his films and the physical challenges such as FKTs in his Trailtown YouTube series. Last year, he became the first person to cross Iceland, the entire country of Iceland, under human power in one day. In today's episode, we talk about mountain biking, we talk about fulfilling potential, having patience, perseverance, and balance whenever you are trying to do lots of different things in your life. There are a lot of nuggets and gems that you will get out of this podcast. Something that I took away is that missing an opportunity does not equate to a failure. And that is hard whenever you want to say yes to everything all around you when you have insane work ethic. We also talked about the importance of taking risks and becoming a small fish in a big pond and how it's easy to stay comfortable and stay in that role. But you'll hear that Payson multiple times has pivoted in order to find that growth. We also talked about the life of being a professional athlete and choosing sponsors, how to manage the business side of things, which isn't something that's really talked about very often. We talked about how and why he got into gravel, which has become a big focus for him and what his year looks like. If you're enjoying the show, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe, leaving those five-star reviews and sharing the show with your friends, whether it be on social media or just hitting that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts makes a really big difference in helping these podcast players recommend it to other people and also just to help other people find the show. The main reason that I do this podcast is that I want to give people all the tools and inspiration that they need to explore their potential, and I make sure that every single guest checks that box. If you want articles on exploring your potential related to mindset, motivation, productivity, and a lot more, I write a weekly newsletter and I spend a lot of time writing an article every single week researching one of these topics. So you can go to sonyaloney.com newsletter to subscribe and make sure that you aren't missing out every single Monday. 
Thank you to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show where all of your donations go to paying my amazing producer Roma, who has been doing this for over five years, starting with episode one and my assistant Rebecca, who makes sure that this podcast is uploaded on time, that the show notes are spotless and that everything is good to go with the podcast. And last, if you are preparing for an event this summer and you are looking for that extra mental edge, make sure you check out my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. It is an online course that I designed that is self-paced, packed with all of the information that I have used over the years to have the most positive experience at these hard races and to develop mental toughness, resilience, and the ability to set goals that keep you motivated over the long term. We also talk about things like confidence and how to deal with race day anxiety. So go to sonyalooney.com and click on the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. You can also find that at moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And check out this course because I think that you'll get a lot out of it. The mental side of sport is one of my favorite topics, and I think that it has to be as important as the physical side. And a lot of us don't take the time to train it. So that is why I designed this course so you could get all of the best tools And these tools are backed by research, backed by sports psychology, so I think you'll really enjoy it. All right, let's get into today's episode with Payson McKelvin. Payson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. It's fun to actually have time to sit down and have a conversation. I've seen you on the trail in Durango really briefly, and I've seen you briefly at races, but we've never actually gotten to sit down and chat. I know it's, it's so funny how that happens. You can feel like you're pretty familiar with someone within, you know, the industry or peers, but not have spent, you know, a quality together. It's always a funny, (laughs) funny experience, but here we are finally getting to know each other a little bit, maybe. (laughs) I know. So I, I feel like I already know all the answers to these questions, which is kind of cheating, but people listening don't. So I'd love to hear how you got started in mountain biking. Well, when I was about four or five years old, my parents, you know, pushed me off down the driveway on my first (laughs) two wheeler. And I guess technically that was mountain biking because we live on a dirt road back in in central Texas where I grew up. But yeah, I was pretty interested in more mainstream sports growing up. Cycling was always kind of a peripheral interest, never totally was a disinterest. Uh, Lance was winning all the tours, so that kept it pretty you know, front of mind. But I, I got into BMX riding first. Kind of Austin, Texas had more of a, a BMX scene at the time. But gradually got more and more interested in mountain biking as I realized that the the 18 acres I grew up on in, in rural central Texas didn't lend itself very well to, you know, small wheeled BMX bikes. So eventually I got a mountain bike that my parents didn't tell me at the time, but I later learned was like a I think we got it from Goodwill and it was, it was technically a girl's bike. It had like a, one of those really slanty back when they made girls bikes look super girly. Rainbow Um, streamers. (laughs) Exactly. Not quite, not quite that far, but it was definitely purple. Maybe that's why I love purple now. I don't know. But anyway, slowly, but surely, you know, upgraded to different hand-me-downs and slowly gravitated towards racing. Finally, once I started having some some recurring knee issues playing basketball and track and field in high school. So when I was about 14, 15, I started doing some local Texas mountain bike races. And I'd always been competitive, always interested in trying to... I always dreamt of being a professional athlete, but I don't know that it was any different than your average, you know, <laughs> young 
young kiddo. But for whatever reason, once I started mountain biking and competing in mountain biking, it was just like blinders on. And I was just so invested in it. All of a sudden had this crazy work ethic and uh, didn't look back, I guess. (laughs) That's so interesting because you know, we can all play team sports or just different sports growing up, but there's something about mountain biking. And I think about endurance sports in general, that is so just sticky. So what do you think it was that made you put the blinders on that made you just connect so deeply with mountain biking? It's a really good question because I, there wasn't immediate positive feedback. Like I, I was much more naturally gifted at track and field. I think I'm a better, like off the couch, I'm a better runner than cyclist. I enjoyed basketball like crazy. I'm on the taller side, which is, you know, better for basketball than it is for cycling typically. (laughs) (laughs) And I I got just smoked in my first season of racing. So I don't really know why. I think a lot of it was the inspiration of of Lance winning the tour. He was a hometown hero, lived just 15 minutes from our house. And interestingly, when I was about 16 years old, maybe a year in, I still don't exactly know how he got the, got the, the word, but he heard that there was this, you know, young teenage kid a few miles away that had ambitions of getting better as a racer. And in, in my, in our area, there wasn't much in the way of really good single track or trails, but he had this ranch, this is Lance that Nike had put on his ranch. Cause I guess that's what happens when you're sponsored by Nike. And he gave me the gate codes to his ranch so I could go ride this private single track. So that was kind of a weird, like unusual ripple in history that, you know, was just a, I guess a, one of those inflection points of luck. And so I had a place to go practice mountain biking after school, but it was very much a solo endeavor. You know, once I moved to Durango and was just surrounded by all these, you know, the thousand Devo kids that grew up riding with like Todd Wells and Shawnee Van Landingham and stuff. I was just like, Oh my God, how am I going to, how am I going to catch up with these kids? But yeah, I, long story short, there were little things, you know, my, my dad was really into mountain biking, but long story short, I don't know. I think it's just, uh, I really enjoyed the, the adventure aspect of it. And, and there was something about the, the freedom. And I think I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert as well. Uh, despite what many may think I'm, I probably skew more towards introversion, which is maybe why I gravitated towards an individual sport as well. Yeah. And it also sounds like you're very internally motivated because you said that with mountain biking, you were just out doing this thing by yourself. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because when I started to interact with different cycling communities, for example, the U S national championships very frequently is at ski resorts at high elevation venues here in the States. And so in the summers, my dad and I would come up here to Colorado to acclimate for, you know, the Sol Vista uh, national champs or the Sun Valley national champs, whatever it is. And so I started to kind of interact with some of these other mountain communities and realized how loose and fun and community oriented cycling could be because back home in Texas, it was very much a solo thing. And at times I almost developed this, uh, maybe dark isn't the right term, but like almost like it was my, it was my, like I, I had to fulfill this destiny in a way. Like I, the teenage brain had so convinced me that this was my purpose that I was like carrying out this destiny. And like, all it took was hard work. Like if I could just push everything else out and not miss a single training day and just be ridiculously focused and motivated and you know, the rest would fall into place. And then once I, and that was just a solo mission, obviously. And then once 
I came here to Durango or some of the other community areas and there are all of these Devo kids that were just playing. I was like, whoa, this is super different. And I think they looked at me kind of like I was this really weirdly hyper-focused 17-year-old that you know didn't necessarily know the point of the sport. So it was interesting to go through that phase of just kind of discovery with the sport and realizing that there's lots of ways to do it. But certainly in those early days, it was a very solo affair. <laughs> I'm sure many of us wish we could say that the teenage version of us that thought our destiny was our destiny was actually <laughs> correct. But in your case, it actually was. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to be totally honest, you know, obviously there's lots of luck involved. There's lots of timing involved. I had a lot going for me. There were people along the way that believed in me when they really didn't need to, you know, some local bike shops back in Austin that just supported me beyond probably what a 15 or 16 year old deserved. My parents were very encouraging and and all that sort of thing. So it wasn't like I was facing some sort of huge adversity by any means. (laughs) But yeah, it, it instilled some good values early on in terms of work ethic. And I'm really grateful. You know, I made it out of high school fairly unscathed in regards to, you know, extracurricular activities that might not typically be healthy. And I'm grateful for that too. (laughs) Yeah. So did you move to Durango because of the mountain bike community? Yeah, for sure. So when I first visited here in, and I can't even remember, I guess I would have been, it was 12 years ago, 13 years ago to acclimate for uh, the Solvest Nationals. Chad Cheney, who's sort of the godfather of Durango Devo, one thing he does really, really well is takes young riders under his wing that might be visiting from out of town. And so he and the rest of the Durango community just really kind of gave me the opportunity to integrate with them and do some rides. And, you know, I was really inspired by the ability of of all of the other riders and realized all the different weaknesses I had. And that was really motivating. So once I went back to Austin, I very much remembered that specialness of the Durango community and, you know, getting to meet Ned Overend and Todd Wells and, you know, whoever else was just so mind boggling to me at the time and only further solidified my obsession. And it just felt like, you know, if in Austin, in the central Texas area, if I was maybe one of the three best mountain bikers within the local race community. And then I went to Durango and probably was like 60th best. (laughs) Durango is probably the place to go to get better. And on top of that, they have one of the top collegiate cycling programs at Fort Lewis. So it was a, I knew I wanted to get a degree. And so it was just kind of um, the perfect place. And yeah, to this day, I feel so grateful that I had the opportunity to actually move here and become a part of this community. That's so funny. Like uh, people listening whenever you, and I'm sure with your podcast too, like whenever somebody listens to somebody or just see somebody, they see themselves, they see their own story and someone else's story. And I, I really relate with you on lots of levels. Like I grew up in New Mexico mountain biking. There wasn't very many people there. I moved to Colorado to Boulder to be around other cyclists and to go to school so that I could get better, um, endurance, like all those things. So yeah, it's just fun to hear your story and to hear, that you were inspired by working on your weaknesses and you were excited about being a small fish in a big pond instead of just saying where it was safe and where you could just be yeah. the best in your community. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, to be totally honest, you know, when you're a 17 year old kicking everyone's ass in central Texas feels pretty good and <laughs> going to some mountain States cup and finishing like 36 to 45 <laughs> kids doesn't feel very good. 
but I also knew that I wanted to actually be pro and try to have a, a good career and fulfill my potential. And so the, the easy thing would have been to stay um, and not go where, you know, there are a bunch of writers better than me, but I knew that was what was required to fulfill my potential, I guess. And the was, writing is just so amazing. Yeah. During, <laughs> and the mountains and the San Juan's yeah. is just awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that the answer to this question changes over the years and maybe by the day, depending on who you are, but what does it mean to fulfill your potential? Good question. That's something that keeps me up at night. I mean, not the, not that question specifically, but just the idea, um, like making the most of our time here. I mean, not to sound too dark, but I mean, forget athletically, like make the most of your, your, your life in general. I feel very fortunate that in cycling, you can have a pretty long career. We see that over and over again. So that's exciting. In terms of what it means to fulfill your potential, I mean, that you're right. That does evolve significantly. If you'd asked me that five years ago, it would have been different. Ten years ago, it would have been different. I want to be the best athlete I can be, of course, but also more and more I'm defining fulfilling potential as having the most, having the greatest positive impact on my sphere as I can. As I get older, I sort of feel like that's the most important thing, increasingly so. Winning races is a nice way to kind of broaden that circle of, of influence, but ultimately, you know, like next week I'm going to go sit down for a coffee with this high school kiddo that's interested in, in getting to the next level of cycling. And, you know, that's, it's not something I'm going to post about. That's not something anyone else is going to see, but it will be as meaningful for me and feel as fulfilling as, um, you know, winning a race. So that didn't used to be the case, but at that, at this point, that's kind of how it's feeling. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that evolution is a lot of people can relate with that because at first you're like, I'm just trying so hard to like, well, and I'm just, I'm not saying this is you. I'm just speaking generally, but like, I just want to prove myself or I just want to see if I can do it. And then once you start proving that to yourself, then you're like, well, what else is there and how else can I be of service? And that often goes outside of yourself once you've proven to yourself that you can do something. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. It is always, it is always evolving. And I think the other thing that I try to do is continue to look to others for inspiration about what that could mean. You know, a a great mutual friend of ours, Reggie Miller, I think is one of the most incredible examples of that. I mean, that guy has nothing else to prove, uh, but he just continues, he continues to give And he's one of the very few, like genuinely A-list famous people I've met who has somehow managed to stay a real person and put others first. And it just never ceases to amaze. Um, And obviously, I'll never reach his level of notoriety. If I can, you know, borrow just a little bit of that mentality and and from others, then, uh, you know, I'll be able to sleep well at night and, and look back and be proud, hopefully. Yeah. His positive impact on the cycling community and beyond is just, there's no words for that. And he's so inspiring to so many people. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And just the humility. Like I just, it absolutely boggles my mind. I had this silly idea for a little video at one point that required, I don't know, like six or eight hours of shooting. And he knew he was going to get absolutely nothing out of it. It was going to be theoretically kind of a waste of his time, but he did it just because he knew it was an opportunity for me. And in hindsight, I feel kind of guilty for even asking him, but he was game. I think he had fun and 
you know, maybe one day I'll be able to kind of pay that forward and do that for, for someone else down the line. <laughs> yeah. I'll also put a link. You interviewed him on your podcast and that was a great episode. I'll link to that for people. Yeah. So you are more focusing now on gravel and also endurance events. Mm-hmm. What made you choose endurance events? Because you showed promise in a lot of different areas of cycling. You know, this is another area that I think just in the last couple of years, I've started to figure out and not entirely on my own. Again, it's been kind of keeping my eyes and ears open and looking for other examples. But for the longest time, you know, I think a lot of times you see different cycling careers almost mirror the the typical maturation that a person goes through. Like in their late teens, early 20s, there's a lot of immaturity in terms of, you know, maybe the way they raced, not as a negative thing, but maybe, you know, they're not very good tactically or they're inconsistent or whatever it is. But even beyond that, you know, I think a lot of people in their early teens or late teens, early 20s, career-wise in cycling, don't necessarily know what kind of athlete they are, what part of the sport they want to really focus on. And I definitely was that way. During that time period, cross country was pretty much exclusively the thing. There was there was road cycling and there was, you know, World Cup cross country. If you wanted to, you know, race big mass participation or sorry, uh, events that got a lot of coverage and had, you know, a bunch of professional opportunities. The exception to that is if you were like, the absolute best at a thing. And I knew that I wasn't just going to jump into some other discipline and be the absolute best at a thing, like be a category of one. And so I felt like the World Cup trajectory was really the route, you know? I wasn't really interested in the road side culturally. I'd done some guest riding for some different teams, but just didn't feel like the culture was one that I really could relate to. So kind of World Cup cross country is is what I thought, you know, you had to do. And really, you know, beat my head against the wall for years trying to break through at the World Cup and had some flash in the pan results. Um, There was one year where I had a really good, you know, battle with Todd Wells on the last lap of the cross country national championships and finished third there and had an opportunity for a factory team ride for the world cup and all that sort of thing. But it just wasn't, it was just more and more starting to feel like the road to me, like world tour road racing. And I was really at a loss as to what I wanted to do. And then just on a whim, got a call from this race promoter, this Italian race promoter who's putting on a race in Mongolia called the Mongolia bike challenge. And I was riding for one of the iterations of the show air team at the time. And they really didn't care whether I went to this late season race in Mongolia, but I'd started kind of, if there's one thing that I think really has benefited me throughout my career, it's paying attention to what other people are doing outside the norm and pulling inspiration from that. And so I was doing that and I started to notice that there were these people kind of on the fringe of what was traditional a little bit that were really finding success. And honestly, you, you were one of them. Um, <laughs> and you know, Rebecca, you're Rebecca Rush and some of these other folks who are having a really significant impact on the sport without following that really well-worn traditional path of world tour road racing or world cup mountain bike racing. And it just felt like I needed a little change up, a little refresh, a a shot of inspiration. At that point, I did not know that I wanted to turn my back on World Cup cross country 
dog racing. But long story short, this race promoter said, if you, <laughs> if you get yourself to Mongolia, uh, I'll pay for all of your expenses when you're there. And I think at that point I had like $3,500 to my name or something and checking account, savings account, everything. <laughs> I was a sophomore, maybe, maybe senior in college. Yeah, I guess I would have been a senior. Anyway, so I <laughs> this flight to Mongolia was like $2,700. I spent the majority of my net worth on this flight to get to Mongolia. Had an incredible experience. Got to learn from riders uh, like Corey Wallace, an old teammate of yours, uh, Yuki, was there. And then also this Italian World Cup racer who I'd raced a couple of times on the World Cup and just never been within like half a lap of, like way better than me. And then all of a sudden in this six-day Mongolian race, he and I were just going back and forth and back and forth. And I realized, okay, A, this style of racing is way more fun to me. And it <laughs> seems like I'm better at it. Like, I don't really know what's going on here, but this is sweet having the time of my life. And I ended up winning that race. Outside Magazine ran an interview which sort of put me on the radar of some other sponsors and kind of that winter, all of a sudden I was like, you know what, why not just start sprinkling some of these different races in that are not the world cup and are really interesting stories and seem to have a lot of interest from sponsors and are just way more fun to me. Like I don't go to some hotel in like Frankfurt, Germany and just go pre-ride a three kilometer lap for a week straight and never actually see where I am. I was so cracked on that. So slowly but surely, I just started integrating more of these style events. I won the marathon national championships, my first national title the following year. And then all of a sudden, everyone just seemed to kind of pigeonhole me as a long distance person. And sponsors were like, all right, you're a national champion in this. Go do a bunch of long distance stuff because you can win the or wear the jersey, all that sort of thing. So it was these weird little like incremental things that I, I didn't know they were happening at the time, but in hindsight, all added up. And then there was around the same time, just this groundswell of uh, mass participation events like Unbound. Obviously, the Leadville 100 was just doing like this. It's always been popular. But after, you know, Rebecca and Lance and Dave Weens and all those folks really made it popular. It was just on this really steep trajectory. And like I said earlier, it was just a lot of timing. You know, realizing that I enjoy that style of racing more, realizing that I was more suited to it physiologically, and then the cycling world as a whole, just really embracing it and, and the industry just really benefiting from this groundswell of mass participation, longer distance things. And yeah, that's a very long explanation, but that's kind of the, the timeline of how it unfolded. It wasn't a conscious decision. It was like a gradual incremental process. Kind of like what you said about how you improved at racing, the incremental process. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think I say frequently that I'm not the most talented athlete I, in terms of cycling. I really believe that. And so I've had to be more patient with progress. It's been much more of a, a process-oriented journey rather than you know realizing that I have some sort of magic talent that I was born with. So it's been a step-by-step -step process kind of in every phase. Yeah. I'm actually going to read a quote. I think it was from Boa. It was on Boa's bio mm. of you, but it says, I'm a survivor. The rougher, gnarlier, and often longer an event goes, the better it is for me. I'm not always the most physically talented one in the group, but my ability to persevere is what sets me apart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for people who might struggle with patience and perseverance? 
I think the key to that is, and I bet you can relate to this, is being in love with the day-to-day. So finding a passion for the roller coaster that is progress. You know, progress is not linear. It's a it's a jagged, <laughs> it's a jagged knife edge, uh, saw blade edge. And so if you can kind of find an appreciation for that long-term process, I think that's key. Like making coming to the realization that failures, those those valleys are what allow the the peaks to be possible. And I know that's a little like metaphorical and ambiguous, but it's I think you have to you have to love the whole process for what it is and know that even the most talented athletes or you know whatever the realm is, it comes easily for very few. And those that it comes more slowly for usually in, enjoy the payoff even more. So at least that's what I believe. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> yeah. And it also sounds like, you know, even from the beginning, like you said, you weren't afraid to have those valleys. You weren't even afraid to start in a valley with your move and, you know, changing to a sport where maybe you weren't as quote naturally gifted just because you're whatever taller or whatever the, the reasons are. Mm. Yeah. And again, it hasn't always been that way. When I was younger, there was definitely a lot of impatience. Um, <laughs> But I love training so much. I think that's really probably been a secret is I, I love to work hard. I love to see incremental progress in training. And, you know, this year is a pretty good example. I've cut back a lot on the number of events I do every year because I found over the years that the, the longer periods of time uninterrupted to prepare for usually the better the event goes. I do really well off of a lot of training versus, you know, tune-up races, so to speak. And so, you know, some athletes struggle with motivation if they're not racing every couple of weekends, but I'm kind of the opposite. I'm so stoked to only have, you know, nine or 10 races this year because I know I'm going to get to just train so well and go on loads of huge rides totally by myself. (laughs) I can't wait for that. Yeah. I'm like you in that regard. Actually, it's kind of funny. I'm excited to race again in June, but it'll have been actually three years since I've raced, which sounds crazy because of you know, I had my son and then I had the pandemic and I was trapped in Canada and couldn't race. And then was like, well, might as well have another. And, yeah, it true. and it doesn't feel like it's been that long. And I still like, I still trained hard. I still love training. Like I wasn't lost for motivation because I didn't have an event to train for. And ultimately it just comes down to the love of riding a bike and the love of adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Gravel racing is another iteration of this like long distance racing and search for adventure and also like the groundswell of things that are happening around you. So how did you decide to do some gravel racing and what do you like about it? Yeah, that's kind of a funny story. A little bit embarrassing in some ways. I was urged to do a gravel race for the first time in 2018 by sponsors. They really were, you know, prodding me about the fact that gravel was really growing and it had a huge audience and they would really appreciate it if I went to some of these races and represented them. And I was like, Ugh, this sounds like kind of the worst of all worlds. Like it's not technical. There's no single track. Like, why would I do this? I think I literally remember saying like, I'd rather do some road races. Cause you know, they're, I had all of these, what I'm saying is I had all these pre- preconceived notions about what it would be, but they, they convinced me to go to unbound in 2018 then dirty Kansas and I had a and I had a terrible time 
I had someone crash in front of me as we were turning off of the pavement onto the very first section of gravel, like a mile and a half in. And, uh, I went down, my chain came off, lost both my bottles. And I spent the first half hour of unbound, just mobbing past like 1500 people to get back to the front of the race. And then I think I ended up having like three flats chased back to the front group so many times. And then by my third flat, a little, little past halfway through, I was just like, you know what? I'm good. And I hadn't, I hadn't DNF'd a race in years, but I was so over it. I was like, I do not understand. Like you can't ride (laughs) this terrain without keeping air in your tires. Like, What is the point of this? And of course, the second I pulled out, I had massive regrets. I went to the finish line and watched Ted King win. And I saw the amount of, I mean, I'm getting chills right now as I say that, just the atmosphere was ridiculous. Like I had, mm-hmm. with the exception of probably Leadville and Cross Country Worlds, it was the most electric bike racing atmosphere I'd ever been part mm-hmm. of. I could tell that there were easily 50% of the people in the finish shoot weren't even cyclists. They were just people from the Kansas region that were just there to, to spectate and cheer. And there were just thousands of people. And I was just like, oh my God, what is this? And I realized, okay, Ted clearly kept air in his tires. All of these other people that are rolling across the finish line seem to have had an amazing time. It sounds like a really cool race played out. I think I just need to figure some stuff out. Like, go back to the drawing board, do some research, see what I did wrong. So I kind of did that. And then I didn't do another gravel race that year. 2019 rolled around and I was getting ready for this uh, white rim FKT concept we had. It hadn't happened yet, but I wanted to get in a good effort before making that attempt. And the Mid-South gravel race was the weekend before. And this go around, I had better equipment. I had done some preparation a little bit more specifically around like five to six hour events and had uh, a great race and, and won that race in a sprint finish with Ted. And then of course I love gravel because I want a race. <laughs> Funny how that works. And I, I say it's kind of an embarrassing story because, you know, it, in hindsight, in some ways it took me finding result success to really enjoy it. And then I sort of like reverse engineered all of the other stuff that really makes gravel special. So once I had an athletic success at it, I was willing to kind of take resources away or focus away from some of my mountain bike goals and put more of them towards the gravel scene. And once I could kind of like take a deep breath, drop these preconceived notions about what gravel was and really immerse myself in the culture of gravel and the community of gravel, gravel, that's when all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like there are people, thousands of people here hundreds of them have never done a bike race and they've chosen to make this their first ever race. And it was just so positive. It was so welcoming, such a diverse, broad cross-sect of cycling abilities. And yeah, I mean, since then I've just dedicated a little bit more to it every year, I guess, you know, being 2019, that only means a couple of years, but I feel, you know, all in at this point. And I still think of myself primarily as a mountain biker, but it's getting awfully close to a a 50-50 identity and and priority schedule-wise. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage and flexibility to, number one, like, drop those preconceived notions. But number two, like, go to a gravel race, have it be kind of, you know, I don't know if this is too harsh of a word, but have it kind of be a failure. Like, it didn't work out the way that you're hoping to. And then have the courage to go back and be like, no, like, I'm not going to let this thing get me down. And then 
even say to yourself, like I needed to have that athletic success to pave the way so I could let go of these other things. And now it's like this amazing thing in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I wish that I could have been, had this incredible holistic mindset where I could just go appreciate gravel for all of the stuff that isn't the race success. But I mean, the truth is like, I'm, I'm a professional cyclist that is extremely motivated to chase results and it, it still matters a lot to me. So at that point, you know, I needed that last little piece to really lock my interest in. And, and once I realized that I could be successful athletically at it, you know, it was, uh, the rest took care of itself. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's any shame in that. I mean, I think that a lot of us hope and wish that our approach to something is holistic and for these like other reasons that are whatever we deem, you know, inspiring, but wanting to go win a race is also part, like you said, a part of being a professional racer and it's fun to try to go win a race. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And despite having a growing interest in some of these non-competitive things, whether it be, you know, some of the little films we've made or, you know, bikepacking trips or whatever it is going to battle and, and having a really hard fought race that's tactical and challenging and, and really, you know, keeps, keeps your blade sharp. That's still to this day, the thing that I love most about the sport. Yeah. It pushes you in a way that nothing else can, and it gets something out of you that nothing else can. And it reminds you like of the extremes of the human experience. For sure. And and I had a nice reminder this past weekend, actually, that it doesn't have to be big races to do that. You know, I wanted to get in a little race style effort before mid South this coming weekend. And Durango had this funny little semi underground gravel event that was about 55 miles in Northern uh, New Mexico in Aztec, just 45 minutes South of Durango. And uh, it finished with uh, about four miles of single track and we had this awesome battle because it's Durango and there were like, you know, 15 <laughs> pros there out of a field of 50 people. And uh, it's probably one of the fastest races I'll do here, but the result, she was like a pen and paper type situation. But we had this this fun battle, myself and one other rider, four miles of single track. And I just remember thinking halfway through that section, I cannot believe how fast we're riding single track right now on our gravel bikes. Like we are pulling ass and dodging trees and like gapping through rock gardens. And I just remember thinking there's no scenario in which I could get myself to do this on my own. That competitive environment with other riders that are really good pushing each other is just such a special place to be. And it doesn't take some huge race to get there. Um, I think little community events are, are a really special thing that, that cycling does well that, you know, I hope will always thrive despite the success of these other big events these days. I'm going to change gears here a little bit and ask you how you go about choosing the sponsors that you work with. That's also evolved a lot. Just continuing to evolve. Yeah. The professional side's weird because it's, you know, as a, an athlete in my early twenties, I was really fighting for anything I could get. And it was a lot of reaching out to brands, saying yes to everything over promising like crazy, just trying to survive. And then as I started to, find some momentum with my career that that started to shift. And I'd say in the last two or three years, it's gotten very challenging to manage kind of in the other direction, you know, deciding what to say no to making sure I maintain a good work-life balance because a lot of those habits out of 
survival, like fear of failure have carried forward. And when you're a very competitive, ambition oriented person, it can be very hard to say no to things when they're a direct result of a lot of hard work. And the last couple of years, it's been a really slippery slope of overcommitting myself and make, I mean, now that, you know, I'm, I'm engaged and making sure that I'm taking care of my partner, Nicole, and I don't have any kids yet, but we have a dog that we think of as a kiddo and realizing that I'm responsible for other lives and not just my own success. And that that means being available and, and just being a good partner all around rather than, you know, just trying to chase every business oriented opportunity. And it's been a tough transition. So it's something that I constantly work on. And I think as of the last 18 months, I'm finally starting to find more balance there. But in terms of how I choose what sponsors to work with, I, let's see, early last year, made the step of hiring an agent, um, someone that manages a lot of my business partnerships. And he's been really helpful in kind of helping me think about the long game. And one of the main things we've been prioritizing are working with brands that are interested in long-term partnerships. Because especially in the, the age of influencers, there's a lot of like little one-off deals that can, can come about. And you know maybe there's a brand that will pay very well for like a, a two or three month social media contract period. But those are so fleeting and not true relationships. They're very transactional. And they're just sort of like cherry picking these little things. And, you know, that's stressful. Like if your revenue stream is, I don't know, like a used car salesman type situation where it's, you know, super commission involved and you're not sure where your next paycheck is going to come from. That's really, really stressful when racing is so unpredictable and you could crash and hurt yourself or you could just go through a dry spell where you have, you know, lots of mechanical issues. Like it's such a an unpredictable sport that more and more we're prioritizing stability, long-term relationships and partnerships that, you know, can be healthy for reasons outside of the financial realm too. You know, are they people that we actually want to work with? And to go back to Reggie Miller here quickly, I had a really agonizingly tough sponsorship decision this off season and I agonized over it for three months. And I asked some various people whose opinions I really value and Reggie was one of them. And he said, dude, forget about everything else and just think about who you want to work with for the next three years. Because that was the, the contract term we were working on. Who are the people that you want to get on Zoom with once or twice a week, be going out to dinner with you know, 10 times a year? Who are the people you want to hang out with and feel good about that? So more and more, we're thinking about it that way also. Yeah. So you have a new bike sponsor this year, Allied Cycle Works. Can you talk about that relationship? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds dumb, but that was one of, if not the hardest decisions I've ever made. And I say that because... It doesn't sound dumb. <laughs> <laughs> both options... Well, it just sounds... you know, It's a very fortunate position to be in, but both options were really good. I, to this day, have an amazing relationship with a lot of people at Trek. And one thing that I really appreciated about Trek is their retention. You know, their employees stick around. They have, it's not unusual to walk into the office and say hi to someone that's been there for 27 years. And that's, that's pretty unusual in any realm, but especially in, in the outdoor industry. <laughs> so that was, that was really what was giving me pause. But 
there's so much upside with Allied. I mean, they have the privilege of playing by a little bit different rules in a lot of ways. They were founded, their founding ethos has some values that I really appreciated. Uh, the fact that they're 100% made in the United States. All of their employees have a livable wage policy that's, that's not always the case in the industry, you know, with, with a lot of um, overseas manufacturing and all that sort of thing. And they also are small and scrappy enough and young enough that they really don't have to worry about industry trends in a lot of ways. So when it comes to innovation, they're purely just trying to make the best race bike possible. And they're also a premium only brand. So unlike a lot of major manufacturers that are, you know, their bread and butter bike is, you know, a $900 bike that they're selling millions of units of. Allied is a premium only brand. So all of their attention is focused on the very cutting edge of innovation and quality and, and all that sort of thing. So that was very intriguing as well. And they're just beautiful bikes. You know, I, some little stuff like they do with paint and the people behind the brand are, were, you know, just uh, things that got me so, so excited and ultimately kind of what uh, led me to, to make that decision. Yeah, I have a quote, another quote from you, and it's this is sort of out of context, but also relates to this. <laughs> it was from uh, the Trainwright podcast, and you said, that said, at the end of the day, you are your own gatekeeper, and the opportunity is there. And it's really simple, but it's really hard. And it sounds like yeah. that also applies to sponsorships. <laughs> no, very true. I mean, I, it doesn't, I mean, I see what you mean why you say it's a little out of context, but it's definitely, it applies to this. That's a scary thing. I know you can relate to this because, like I said, I drew inspiration from you and people like you when I was kind of moving in this direction. But this whole entrepreneurial style, I guess, journey as a pro cyclist rather than one that has a lot of structure like the world tour is really scary in a lot of ways because it's a blank slate, but it's also a blank canvas. And if you're creative and you are highly motivated and have interesting ideas, you can make almost anything you want. And that lack of structure isn't for everybody, for sure, but the opportunity is there to really do some neat stuff. And so, yeah, I like being creative and, and I enjoy that sort of lack of structure and resulting opportunity, but you know, for other people, it's not the, not the way. <laughs> yeah. And it is hard. And like you said, the work ethic piece, like you mentioned, you found work ethic when you found cycling, um, sort of racing as a cyclist. And that work ethic piece can be really hard. Like it takes confidence and courage to say no. It takes confidence and courage to not work as hard as possible, work yourself to the bone. And I've definitely touched that fire multiple times myself. And yeah, when you have the energy and the drive to do it, it it's hard to know what opportunities to say yes to. And sometimes you don't even have the opportunities, but just what opportunities to even try to reach for and to do that in a balanced way. It's super hard. It really is. It really is. And especially when you start involving yourself in a bunch of different realms, you know, whether it be podcast, filmmaking, you know, just making stuff, you know, there's a whole bunch of different creative things you can do. And all of a sudden those all become little businesses and mm -hmm. it's easy to look up one morning or wake up one morning and be like, huh, I run four businesses that might not be sustainable. <laughs> and then figuring out which one to kind of pull back on so that you can, continue to race your bike effectively. That's a constant uh, battle for me. <laughs> yeah. Since we're in the realm of podcasting, let's talk about your podcast. Like what, why did you start it and what have you gotten out of it? Ooh, 
Yeah, podcast. I bet it's fun for you to kind of look back on podcasting because you were really one of the first, which is cool. You've been doing it a long time, from what I can tell. And uh, you know, it wasn't my idea to do the podcast at first, and I was very resistant to it. And the main reason for that is because there are a lot of people out there already doing a good job, uh, like you and and other people within the cycling industry and then also the outdoor industry in general. And I just I didn't feel like the world needed another podcast. And also I was afraid that it would be viewed as another reach for like self-grandstanding, like bringing attention to myself. And Red Bull was the one that reached out with the idea. And I think it was like the second or third time I said, you know, I really don't think this is for me. They put a list in front of me of athletes, interesting people that they could make an immediate introduction to as guests. And then also said, you know, how many of these people have you had interesting conversations with, whether it be, you know, the Red Bull High Performance Center or, you know, at some movie showing you happen to be at or whatever it is, just an event, whatever. And I realized that half the people on the list I'd already had some sort of conversation with, whether it be in person or, you know, even just a couple Instagram messages shared, whatever. And I realized, wow, you know, I, I get to chat with a lot of really cool people. And ultimately, that's what this is about. Like, it's not a podcast about pacing. It's, yeah. it's me using the opportunity and my network to elevate others. And all of a sudden it flipped for me. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is a cool opportunity to shift the focus away from me. And I've always been curious about people and, and realized that it was an opportunity to kind of scratch that itch that had really been lacking due to racing be, being such a self-centered sort of line of work, selfish line of work. And so Anyway, long story short, finally said yes. And uh, Reggie was my first inter- interview, actually, crazily. He was and- uh, one of my first podcast interviews, too, I think. It was, I, I, I'm going to interrupt and tell a crazy story yeah. about this. Sure. Like, I was at his house. We recorded with all the equipment and everything. I had it saved on my computer. And, we were, and then we were flying out of San Francisco, and someone broke into the rental car and stole my computer. So I lost, yes. So I lost the episode, but as a backup, just, I don't know why I never do this, but I I was actually on my phone. I just had my phone set in a corner shooting video of us. So I took the audio from my phone, which was like really terrible quality. And I still put it out there. Who cares? It was Reggie Miller. Dang, that's crazy. (laughs) Anyways. So, so so Reggie was one of your first guests. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So I have a crazy story about a lost podcast also, but I didn't get it back. I recorded two episodes in quick succession, one with another Squamish writer, Jeff Kabush. Really great podcast. I thought really enjoyed it. And then shortly thereafter, I did one with Richie Rude, who literally had never done a long form interview. Uh, Those that don't know, Richie Rude's multi-time Enduro World Series champion, a very soft-spoken guy, very rarely does interviews of any kind, definitely doesn't do long form interviews. And finally, after working on him for five days straight, when we were at a, a Red Bull training camp together, he finally said yes. And I mean, he talked a blue streak for an hour and I was like, oh my God, the bike world has just going to blow their minds. No one thinks Richie can talk. I was so stoked. And then a few days later, I had to fly to Israel for a, a training camp with uh, the Startup Nation road team, just a weird mutual sponsor opportunity thing. And... To this day, I don't know how or why, but my electronics bag got swiped out of my hotel room while I was there and I didn't have a backup. And uh, yeah, big lesson learned. 
So those episodes are gone forever, but that's really the only major podcast tragedy in our, in our podcast history. <laughs> I really enjoy listening to your podcast and I think you do a really great job as a host and I enjoy the guests as well. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. It's, it's fun. I feel like those of us that stick with it are, are like a, a small crowd, you know, like we need to pat each other on the back now and then because yeah. it's very frequent for podcasts to come and go or be very sporadic. And I'm always impressed with people who stick with it and turn them out on a regular basis because I know personally how hard that is. It's God, it's such a mountain of work. It's really mind boggling, just the time commitment. So good on you. Also good on you. Yeah. I think it comes back to like the love of the work. Like we love training mm-hmm. because we love riding our bike and we love podcasting because we love just talking to people, helping, you know, curiosity about others and also helping get other stories out there. And that keeps you going. Totally. And then also it's just such an awesome sneaky excuse to like get master classes from impressive people. Yeah. You know, that the masterclass series, Yeah, like we, we basically get to just have an excuse to be like, Hey, I want to, I want a one hour consultation from you. And I'm yeah, going to yeah. it as a media interview. Are you cool with that? And yeah. usually they say yes. So yeah, it's uh it's super fun. I get a ton out of it. So we talked about all these different things you're doing. We didn't even talk about all your projects because you do filmmaking, like you're, you have an incredible social media account. I'm sure there's lots of things I'm not even bringing up. How do you balance your training, your racing and all these commitments that you're making? Because it, like you said, it is hard. So do you have any, here's my masterclass. I'm asking for your advice. How do you, <laughs> how do you balance all of it? Or how do you manage your time? Uh, I'm going to steal a quip from Jens Voigt back in the day, which was it's controlled chaos, loosely <laughs> controlled chaos. It's, um, it's definitely not always pretty. I'm not someone that has an incredible, like, spreadsheet system. I very much intuit my way to different opportunities. I am definitely more creative than I am organized. Nicole, my partner, is gradually helping me create a more sustainable schedule and be more organized. She's very organized and I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, there is no secret. Like I, I basically stretch myself until something falls through the cracks. And then I realize, all right, that was too far. And I'd say over the last two years, I've really found like the full capacity of what's possible for me to pull off at once. And I'm now pulling back from that because I want to prioritize quality um, over quantity. So as an example, I had uh, an opportunity to be an integral facilitator and have uh, like be, be involved in the business side of a really big film series, like a, a, a big budget, you know, Amazon prime Netflix style episodic series for this year. But I knew based on past experience that it was going to be an insane amount of work. And so rather than maintain that involvement that would have, you know, yielded a nice paycheck, I decided to hand it off to someone else because I still wanted to see it happen and um, that was one of the hardest no's um, I followed through with on a while. But um, I'm really glad I did because as an example, there's a good chance we wouldn't have had the time to talk today among <laughs> many other things. And so I'm gradually getting better at that, gradually getting better at saying no to things and realizing that missing an opportunity isn't a failure, which five or six years ago, it did feel like 
and that, you know, opportunities will likely continue to come and you don't have to take every single one. And ultimately what matters most is, you know, spending time with people you like to spend time with and having good mental health and being, you know, riding my bike as much as I want to and just having good balance in life. So I think I'm finally starting to maybe turn a corner on that, but maybe check in in another six months. <laughs> Boom, knowledge, knowledge bomb. Missing an opportunity isn't a failure. And um, knowing what your priorities are and setting hard boundaries around them is, is the key to feeling good. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the hard things I had to reckon with is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of my value still is tied to winning races and legitimizing a lot of the other stuff I like to do having it be legitimized by racing is important. You know, as you know, bike racing is, is a sport that you mostly lose at. You know, when, <laughs> if you win two times a year, if you win three times a year, that's an insanely successful year. Yeah. If you have one major win a year, that's a successful year. But it really is good and important at this stage to still have that one win a year. And if I'm busy producing you know, a six part series where every episode is an hour long, I'm going to train less. And that probably means winning less. <laughs> so yeah. got to be, got to stay honest with that sort of thing still at this point. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, where can people find you and your podcast and all your projects? So I'm actually in the middle of, not in the middle, we're, we're about to hit publish on a, a new website. Finally, a refreshed website for the first time in a good number of years. That'll be live in the next week or two. Cool. Um, so then it'll be very easy to, to find everything. Um, that'll just be pacemcalvin.com. But until then, I'm basically just pacemcalvin at everything. Instagram, YouTube. The podcast is The Adventure Stash. My name is not in the title. So that's kind of the only one that's different, I guess, in that regard. But it's on Spotify, iTunes, all those things. Awesome. Well, we will link to all those and congrats on the website. I redid mine last year and I know how much work that is. It's insane. Even when you're not the one doing like the actual computer coding, it's just like crazy. Right? Oh my I gosh. Know. I it's have insane. this awesome person building it. And so I'm like, uh, how are we emailing about this like four times a week still? But yeah, it's crazy. We're almost there. <laughs> well, congrats on all your success and it'll be fun to continue watching and maybe our paths will cross and we can go for a ride this year. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sonia. Keep up the good work and I hope the, the little one comes soon. How exciting. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Payson McKelvin and got to know him a little bit better. Make sure to cheer him on if you see him at an event this year and check out his social media. If you're getting a lot out of the show, make sure that you share your key takeaways on social media with your friends. That way Payson and I can see it. Make sure that you tag us. It's always super fun to see who this is connecting with, who this is landing with, because a lot of times podcasters and podcast guests, we're just talking into a microphone at each other or with each other, and we don't really know what impact we're making on the world. And we always love to hear from you. Thanks again for being here. I know there are many, many podcasts out there, and I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week.